0: You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hi everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Y'all, we need to talk about family farming, the myth, the legend. First of all, you've probably heard that family farming isn't really even a thing anymore, and that's kind of true, which is a whole different episode. For today, since people are really invested in the idea and the institution of family farming and its history, we're going to talk about that, and the disclaimer has been disclaimed. A little bit of personal background is called for here. Like most Anglo-Americans, my family used to farm back in the day. My grandmother grew up on a little dairy farm in California near Yosemite, and they lost it in the Great Depression sometime when she was in the 10 to 15 years old age range. Digging back further than that gets tricky because they were constantly on the move. Every 10 years or so, every time the family shows up in the census, they're in a new place and they're further west than they were last time. If you've partaken of Little House on the Prairie or any of the pioneer literature, that's going to sound familiar. And like Little House, the story that gets handed down is how it was simple wanderlust. Love of freedom and the open sky, farming life... And like Little House on the Prairie, when you look back into how and where and why various choices got made, the reality is a lot more complicated than Wanderlust. If you're, again, into Little House on the Prairie, you need to read Prairie Fires. It's a recent book. Uh, Little House was written by Laura Ingalls' daughter from her mother's recollections as a little girl. It's a generation and a half removed from what actually happened. And a funny thing about the human mind, it doesn't matter what's going on when you're a kid. You're going to think later on that it was awesome, because being a kid is awesome. You're not in charge of anything, and you don't understand most of what's going on. So we all tend to look back to that time. uh, It was a very simple time in our own lives personally, and so we think that the world was simpler back then. And to think that our youth was some kind of golden age... Prairie Fires goes behind the scenes and ties that little house on the prairie story into the very unsimple things that were going on in the U.S. at the time. It's a very informative read. So in a similar vein, talking to Grandma about life in the farming days was interesting. Now, Grandma's red. She passed away about a year ago. She taught me how to crochet and grow roses and was a grandchild's very valuable ally in the eternal struggle against a common foe, which is the generation in the middle. And she'd tell these stories about growing up on the farm that made it sound pretty great. She and the neighbor kids would go on these long horse rides in the late afternoon and early evening, and they were pretty close to Yosemite again, so it was fairly lovely countryside. And her dad had a pretty big herd for the time. I think it was about 30 cows. And also, her dad was just a little guy. It was only a five-acre farm. They were a very small family farm. And as a kid, I was like, cool. And then as I got older and got to know more about how farming works, I started to realize that none of this added up at all. You cannot keep 30 cows on five acres. They need at least one acre apiece, maybe more like two, depending on the land. And that's before adding in grazing for the horses. You can't even afford to own horses dairying on five acres. So I go, Grandma, how did this work? And she'd kind of go, Oh, well, of course, he was also renting a lot of land. Ah, there it is. So, that kind of setup is really common in the farm world. You might own a little bit of base acreage, but when you're doing well and kind of on the up and up, it's often on rented land. Which explains why Grandma experienced a comfortable life consistent with a pretty big operation for its time, but also remembers being on just a little tiny family farm. Now, I don't think Grandma lied. I think she was just a kid when all of this was happening, and it's not like when you're a kid your parents are explaining all the business details of their life to you. But it took a long time of me working in agriculture to notice the story she was telling about her past was a little inconsistent and start to dig deeper. So what did I learn from this experience? Love your elders, respect their experience, and maybe don't always take what they tell you at face value. The past is complicated. Nostalgia is seductive, and our parents and our ancestors and their lives and accomplishments can take on this larger-than-life quality. To draw it forward to something in our time, the movie Black Panther actually did a really incredible job of putting this into a story. The main character, his name is T'Challa, he's the Black Panther. He's just lost his father, and he's turning himself inside out to live up to his dad's legacy. But as things unfold, he learns more things about his father and his life that his father had never told him. In spite of trying to do the right thing and set the right path for his kingdom, his father had made some sketchy decisions and had made some mistakes, as we all do. And a generation later, even though T'Challa had had nothing to do with his father's dodgy dealings and mistakes, the consequences of them are still there. And T'Challa still has to deal with them, even though he didn't cause them. That's his job as a young man who's just coming into his authority and his power and the time in his life when he's going to be making decisions for the future, what to do with these things from the past that haunt him today, and how to make sure that the buck stops with him, that he doesn't pass these ghosts on to the next generation, and that he also doesn't make new mistakes that will outlive him as well. Now, if you're over 25 and that's not intensely relatable, congrats to you, my dude. But for the rest of us, a lot of the stuff that we have to deal with in life is baggage from the past that we never asked for and never made. But we still have to deal with it. It's still there. And we can stick our fingers in our ears and ignore it, but that just means it's going to be there, still waiting for the next generation. And that's not how to be a good parent or a responsible adult of any kind. So, this is a great time to have a talk about how to love somebody or how to love something without having to believe that it's shit don't stink. We need to have a talk about family farms and what they mean. We need to talk about who's gotten to farm, and how, and why, and what that has to do with sustainability. We hear a lot about really old family farms. These are century farms maybe that have been in the same family for a hundred years, or fifth or eighth generation family farms. I want us all to be aware that we hear a lot about these old farms because they're weird. The 80-20 rule is a thing, and we love special exceptions, they're interesting. So that 20% that's weird gets way more than 20% of the attention. But today is about the 80%. The 80% in family farming involved a lot of failure. The legend of family farms is that there was a time when they were successful in general, and then they started to fail because of agribusiness in the 1930s, or sometimes it was the 1970s or the 1980s. Did you ever think it was really funny that nobody can seem to agree on the date where after family farms struggled, but before that they were good? That's because there was no such time. Small individual family farms are brittle by nature, there's not a lot of cushion to prevent failure. You're often working with a constrained skill set, and when failure does happen, it's totalizing. It's your entire life. It's your family's lifestyle and well-being. And often, relationships with family and neighbors can go down the tubes. That's a big barrier to innovation, because you have to take risks to try something different and to improve. But in that position, you cannot afford to take risks. And it's one thing when one individual business can't take risks. It's another thing entirely when there's a whole sector made up of little parts, little family farms, none of whom can take risks. The entire sector, all of agriculture, becomes very brittle when it's built on that kind of basis. Homesteading in the real-life settling of North America looked way less like peaceful settled farm country and more like a gold rush where the gold was fresh land. Every time settlers got their hands on new territory, people poured in. Then a bunch failed really quickly, and larger farmers or real estate developers bought them up. You may recognize this pattern of small farms failing and getting bought up by larger farms and real estate interests as exactly how things work today. We're not struggling because we've abandoned a traditional American way of life. We're struggling because we are still living the traditional American way of life. And that way of life had some serious problems from the get-go. Let's do some examples. In the late 1800s, a wheat boom created this thing called a bonanza farm in the Dakotas, California, and the Pacific Northwest. This was long before tractors were invented, so they'd farm square miles of wheat at a time with horses and steam engines. They were also very dependent on migrant farm labor. These bonanza farms would bring up to a thousand people at a time to work on harvest, and a lot of them were braceros from Mexico. I'm willing to bet that whatever mental image people have of American farms in the 1870s, it's not 15 square miles, 300 horses, 1,000 braceros, and venture capital. But that was very much the reality. Now let's go back, way back, to the early colonization of North America, like the 1600s and 1700s. At that time, the big threat people worried about their homesteads succumbing to wasn't bigger farms. It was colonizers failing so badly at homesteading that they gave up on the euro lifestyle entirely and ran off to join the Indians, who knew what they were doing and had cool tricks like food and clothing and shelter as a result. The settlers called it going native, and it happened often enough that settlers saw it as a real threat to the survival of their colonies. A lot of the colonial stigma about how Native Americans were uncivilized and whatever else comes directly from that time colonizers had to tell each other these bogeyman stories about the Indians just to keep everyone from going, forget this, and just running off and becoming one. The cultural center of the U.S. today is descended from the people who believed those bogeyman stories so hard that when things got tough, they decided to stay inside their stockades and risk starvation instead of trying a shot at life that everyone knew worked. So homesteading and family farming didn't work out too well back then either. Now jumping back a little bit forward to the 1800s for a second time. In that time period, homesteads failing out and getting wrapped into larger operations was incredibly common, even in the 1800s. It happened so much in the 1800s that they had a name for it. They called it latifundization. Where did that weird word come from? It comes from latifundia, which is Latin for a big estate farm because not only are big, market-oriented farms so ancient that there's a word for them in a dead language, but ancient Rome also had the same thing, where small family farms kept failing, because they're brittle by nature, and getting accumulated into those big, market-oriented farms. Now, writers far more posh than I have spilled a lot of ink on how small farms correlate to liberty and big estates to tyranny. What those posh writers won't tell you is this. They're so fancy that they've never spent a day in their life actually working on a farm of any kind, and are not familiar with the day-to-day operations. And I think there are a lot of hazards to getting all of your information on agriculture and how it intersects with society from powdered wig dudes who spent their entire life at fancy lad school and are just maybe pushing the small farm concept to keep the lower classes busy and out of their hair. That's why we're going to take a look at family farming from the inside, from the dirty jobs, day-in-day-out angle. So as we look from that angle, again, there's a lot of things that we need to be clear on about homesteads and family farms in North America. Why failure was so common, and why that continues today. 1. The people running homesteads usually weren't farmers by training. They had come from some other life back east or in Europe. And the legend of independent farm life had been pushed and marketed so hard that people with zero experience in agriculture really thought they could hack it. Of course these folks had a hard time making it. Two, for those who did come from a farming background, hopscotching west to wherever land was cheap for the taking meant they usually wound up with weather and soil that didn't match what they'd grown up with. But that was all they knew, so they kept farming the old country crops with old country methods. When enough people did it all at once, we got the Dust Bowl. But the entire history of North American colonization, long before it blew up into the Dust Bowl, is awkward mismatches of farmers' abilities and their actual physical location. This had a lot to do with farm failures as well. Three, the folks who did come from a farming background, and I don't mean the workers, but the owners who actually got title to the land and made decisions about how the farm would operate, were from Europe. And we need to understand that Europe, compared to other regions that had similar levels of technology and population and city size, Europe's agricultural skill set was very primitive. Let's go on a quick world tour to see what I mean. In Central America, people were building these tremendously fertile fields out of lake beds called chinampas. They produced several crops per year. That's how they were able to support cities bigger than Europe's with higher standards of living. Mexico held these massive metropolises like Tenochtitlan, Teotihuacan, and Tikal. Huge, bustling cities with monuments, causeways, and other public works that shocked immigrants from Europe who saw them in their time. All that activity had to be supported with advanced farming techniques. These cities were in deserts and rainforests that we still have a hard time farming effectively to this day, but they thrived. Cultures based on rice in West Africa developed really sophisticated hydrological engineering to handle the tides, river flows, and rainwater to keep the right salinity level for each phase of the rice life cycle. The Amazon is filled with ancient orchards and has patches of rich man-made soil that add up to the size of France. Medieval and ancient Middle East had sophisticated irrigation and processing economies for grain, sugar, cotton, dates, and other crops and they invented astronomy, geometry, and the basis of the modern calendar to organize their agricultural economies thousands of years ago. Places as remote as the Pacific Islands are dotted with ancient fish farms made of dams, weirs, lakes, and service channels cut by hand out of bedrock. And Old Polynesia did all of this without metal or draft animals. Meanwhile, medieval and Renaissance-era Europe had the technological benefits like iron and horses, but their big farm innovations were things like, we added another year to our crop rotation. It's a super bold move and we're very proud. There's just there's really just no comparison between Europe's level and the rest of the world's, and we haven't even gotten to East Asia yet. East Asia is a classic example of really ancient, really sophisticated agriculture. An American named Hiram Franklin King traveled around Korea, China, and Japan in 1909 and was blown away by how hardcore they were farming out there. We're familiar with all the visuals of rice terraces, people transplanting rice by hand. What doesn't get captured in pictures? That hand transplanting means they can grow three crops a year, that it's all held together by thousands of years worth of hydrological engineering like canals, dikes, dams, flood levees, and other public works. How much fish comes out of those canals and onto tables. How even the six-inch-thick berm between rice terraces wasn't wasted but planted into some kind of crop. And how instead of throwing waste and sewage into the streets and rivers like Europe and colonizers in the United States were doing, folks in East Asia were really meticulous about collecting it all, putting it through a basic composting process, and using it as a fertilizer. Did this all require ridiculous amounts of hand labor? Yes. And so did U.S. agriculture at the time. 1909 was about the height of sharecropping, and we had nowhere near that level of results. One of my favorite things that Hiram Franklin King mentions was his amazement at how few flies there were in China and Japan and Korea, compared to what he was used to in the United States and Europe, which is a testament to the effectiveness of East Asia's approach to sanitation. Another side effect of the West's haphazard sewage disposal techniques at the time Merry old England had been throwing sewage into the Thames for so long that not only were its fisheries long dead, but the entire countryside soil had become impoverished, mined of its nutrients, and never replenished. Britain had taken to sending out merchants to the continent of Europe to dig up old graveyards and battlefields and send the human bones back home to grind up as fertilizer. They were that desperate for fertility. The Low Countries are really the one bright spot in European agriculture. They're the ones who added that cover crop to the three-year rotation. Sometime in the 15 or 1600s, it blew everyone's mind. And then they also started doing some very basic dams and polders, like China had been doing for thousands of years. And that made more land, but it was also very expensive, so they wanted to maximize it. They got into greenhouses very early on, and to this day, they're still Europe's number one source of vegetables. They're the entire world's top exporter of potatoes and onions, etc., etc., even though they're tidy and cold and dark. So on the one hand, yeah, go Holland. And on the other hand, think about what this tells us about agriculture and the rest of Europe, right? It was really primitive 500 years ago, and still to this day, you know, despite all these really fancy products, the agriculture itself is not that determined or that collected. And in Holland, they're having some fairly significant issues with pollution, because they're still rolling with that old-time European tradition of just letting shit leak out wherever. So that's the tradition that North America's colonizers were drawing from. Europe's primitive agricultural technology was, and to this day still is, a big driver of labor trends. We're used to the idea of colonizers needing manual labor for farms, but a lot of the slave trade and today's traffic in migrant laborers were and are driven by the need for knowledge workers. People were planting plantations full of cotton and rice and indigo and tobacco. Did any of these things grow back in Europe? Uh uh-uh. They had to import the knowledge of how to grow, harvest, and process those crops from elsewhere. Slave owners would go shopping specifically for people from places in West Africa that specialized in their crop. For example, Carolina rice growers needed people who had grown up in West Africa and done the engineering on the dams, the levees, and the other waterworks that it took to grow rice in semi-salty coastal marshes. The Carolina rice industry was built on kidnapped engineers, which could make that era the most excited the South has ever been about investing in human capital. California owes its massive agricultural success to Latine farm expertise from the mission period forward to today, and to waves of immigration from the Mediterranean, China, Japan, and elsewhere in Far East Asia. Is the weather there great for fruits and vegetables? 100%, but I'll tell you something else. It doesn't matter how good the weather is if all the farmers are from Northwest Europe. Because farmers from Northwest Europe are going to grow wheat and dairy no matter where they end up. Like my family did. So again, even the European colonists who'd actually farmed back in Europe or further east were starting from a very primitive skill set. And that was before they got all up in alien climates and soil types that very low bar skill level really set the baseline for North American agriculture for the next few centuries. It created a lot of demand for the things that agribusiness does. Fertilizers to fix soils burnt out by bad management. Feedlots, because pasturing livestock through their entire life cycle, including finishing, takes a lot of skill, and a lot of our farm infrastructure just wasn't up to that challenge. Professional seed and livestock breeding, because farm communities could have formed co-ops or made other ways for themselves to handle that internally, but for the most part, that simply wasn't done. Herbicides and insecticides that can be useful tools in strict moderation, but whose massive sales were generally propelled by using them as a substitute for long-term planning, which, by the way, is free and pesticides are very expensive. State and federal level governments also spent billions of dollars on free training services just for farmers, starting in the 1800s forward to now. And that's above and beyond crop insurance and subsidy programs and specialized reduced taxation programs for agriculture. And to this day, you still run into a lot of farmers who don't know about that training system or what it is or how to use it. It's called agricultural extension. That's a lot to take in. But the bottom line is that any way you slice it, the low skill and technology level that us settlers were starting from was just another dimension in which family farms in the us were not set up for success think back to that first episode when we talked about the kestrels and the peanuts the farmers who came up with those common sense solutions for their farms were pretty isolated cases within their communities remember how most of their neighbors were having these huge struggles with these same very solvable issues as much as it pains me to say this, we are in a situation where farms that think through their problems and come up with an affordable, sustainable in-house solution are not only the minority, but are often seen by their neighbors as weirdos for doing that. And it's not just me, Joel Salatin has been saying this for 25 years. It's time for the sustainable food and farm movements to take that message to heart. We need to recognize that there's a huge human capital problem to what's going on in agriculture and take that seriously. A whole lot of our quote-unquote agribusiness problems are just wallpaper over an even deeper, much older human capital problem. Four, barriers to marketing. The agrarian ideal is built around this idea that wealth comes from land, but it doesn't. It comes from people. It comes from people working that land, people paying you for the products of that land, and so on. I like to think back again to those really early colonizers who kept flopping at farming and running off to join the Native Americans, who did know how to farm. That was the same landscape, same weather, same soil. Different people. It is the people that make the goods. It is not the land. So again, the other people that you need to make a farm work are customers. Barriers to marketing throughout American farm history could be its own entire book, but to boil it down, U.S. farmers have always been somewhat disconnected from actually having to sell what they make to the final customer. That didn't just happen in the 70s because of agribusiness, it's always been like that. And it's very much reflected in attitudes towards agriculture, both in and outside the farming profession. I'll give you an example. Back in the day, I had kind of a a vague idea that I wanted to farm for a living someday, and whenever this got mentioned, both to farmers and to non-farmers, they would always ask, oh, well, what do you want to grow? Now, I always thought that was a weird question, because obviously if you want to make a living at it, then you grow what people want. And I don't know what that is yet. It depends on where you live, right? There's a big unfilled demand for berries or grass-fed milk, then grow that. So I would say as much to people. And they would look at me like I had two heads. A lot of folks approach agriculture as a lifestyle first. They'll say, I'm a dairy farmer, or I'm a tobacco farmer, and just grow that. And then the fact that someone has to want to buy it is an afterthought. There are, to this day, a lot of farmers that do not stop and ask themselves really basic business questions like, do people even want what I'm growing? And that Spirit is just such a great way to make sure that a small farm stays small. There was a time when there were real physical barriers to making agricultural sales, time and distance. Now we have phones and the internet, and those are gone. Now it's mostly about mindset and skill set. Marketing is a full-time job. It's not an annoying little detail that you have to deal with after you've done with the crop. The farms that I know that are successful, of all types and all sizes, are the ones that treat marketing like the full-time job that it is. They'll often tell you, selling the crop is actually more work than just growing it. If there are any farmers listening right now, the ones who do their own marketing are nodding along, and the ones who don't are kicking a table upside down and yelling about how it's not fair that they don't get 100% of the retail food dollar. It's that pivotal of an issue. But farms that take care of themselves by not ignoring sales, uh, their businesses and their farms are rocking out. They're always under construction, they're opening new projects and getting into new crops and new markets because the opportunities are out there. Americans are eating more fruit and vegetables than ever before, and a growing middle class all over the globe wants nice things like mushrooms and cherries. This is not a doom and gloom scenario for farms. It's a great time to be in the produce business as long as you don't think that worrying about who's going to buy your crop is someone else's job. The difficulty that U.S. agriculture has in dealing with the people side of the business is a big theme. It's going to come up later a lot. It also ties into something I see in a lot of business situations, not just agriculture and food. Anything worth doing takes a lot of different people with different skill sets working together, The lone genius tinkerer concept is really sexy and incredibly oversold. I think this is a key piece of why our economy has gotten itself into so many unsustainable potholes. For any company or industry uh, to steer around those, you have to get a lot of different insights, digest them into smart decisions, and have the skills to execute that all in a coordinated way. And that takes a level of leadership that most U.S. companies have not fostered even though doing that would actually make them more money. Again, entire books could be written about this. For today, our takeaway is that family farms tend to struggle with even the basics of the marketing skill set, which is crucial to any business's survival, and that's another huge part of why so many family farms fail. 5. The economies of the U.S. and Europe, from the 1600s through the 1900s and even, sort of to this day, were really built on handling their problems by just throwing people west, not actually solving anything. You see this over and over again in all kinds of pioneer stories, and I see traces of it in my own family's dotted track out west. Family farms would keep getting destroyed in financial panics. They'd get foreclosed, someone else would buy the land at auction, and then the destitute would just pack up, move further west, and try their luck again. So it was fine. There was always this sunset to ride off into, a giant escape valve to the west. So it was okay that the financial system didn't really work and just kept ruining people over and over. When the panic of 1837 hit, there were newspapers writing things like, Fly! Scatter through the country! Go to the Great West! Anything, rather than remain here. It was acknowledged that running west is what you do when things get bad. Westward expansion served an important purpose for settlers who didn't have a lot. It was somewhere to start over, and over, and over, and over, and over. And it also served an important purpose for elites. They could keep sculpting the economy to their own benefit without having to reckon with the consequences, because the consequences kept just going west, with stars in their eyes, thinking they were leaving it all behind. Now, before we get really excited about the capital P populism, these homesteaders, people like my family were just as much a part of this as the rich. They knew what they were doing. They knew that as much noise as they made about the scary, hostile Native Americans out on the frontier, they would still rather go up against them than the patricians of their own culture any day. And that's what they did. You don't need book learning to know that at some point that continent ends, there's no land left, and the homesteading party is over. But it didn't matter because. My people loved those handouts while they lasted. And yeah, mathematically, homesteads were absolutely a handout. All you had to do was live on the claim for five years, and let's be honest, you'd have to spend that five years living somewhere anyway. Then the federal government would mostly take care of the Native Americans for you, and then that piece of land was yours forever. Or as long as you could hang on to it. You'd have to pay taxes on it, of course, but... So did people who actually had to save up and buy their land instead of just living there. And securing that land for new colonizers was very expensive for the government, so taxing it did make a lot of sense. These free land programs were incredibly popular among the people who benefited from them. And it was fantastic at drumming up votes from those people, which was almost entirely white's. Homesteading programs certainly weren't popular with Native Americans, and Blacks and Asian immigrants were barred by local sundown laws across giant swaths of the Midwest, Pacific Northwest, and California. The Midwest and Portland didn't end up as white as they are by accident, y'all. That was handcrafted, vintage legal favoritism from my people to my people, Team W. It was a massive government welfare program, and everybody involved knew that. A quote from Prairie Fires. For whites... Free land was the original American dream. Inspired by massive taxpayer-funded acquisitions such as the Louisiana Purchase, their rallying cry was, why not vote yourself a farm? And beyond just giving farms to people who probably didn't have a lot of business farming, I suspect there was another effect of it being that easy to get land. If fresh land cost no money and all you had to do was live on it for five years, you had no skin in the game when it came to leaving. We saw what that approach to housing did in 2008 and the years leading up to it. Sometimes people bought houses with little intention of actually staying there in the long term and with no real down payment to lose, just walked out on the mortgage. Homesteading kind of worked like that, too. If it's all about hopscotching west and you know you're probably going to do that, why bother farming well? Why be good at it? Why not just rip up the sod and see what you can get for a few years, and when the yields start to dry up, pack up and keep going? That easy-come, easy-go farm approach didn't lend itself to people farming well. At all. In many instances, it lent itself to farming like locusts. You land, you take what you can get, and you move on. We all have this mythos of stalwart family farms staying in place generation after generation, but the reality is... Those farms are the exceptions to the rule, and that's why they're proud. The old gentlemen's estates that you can visit with historical markers about how they used to cover crops and other methods to keep the land fertile, like Monticello and Mount Vernon, also a strong minority, these were gentlemen with political aspirations, and they needed to keep the same address so they could run for office. They also tended to be slave owners, so what was a little extra labor to keep the land going? The legacy of farming like locusts goes on to this day. It shaped and formed and built the way America farms in a lot of really fundamental ways. Thanks to the local food movement, there are now a bunch of folks trying to get greenhouses going in or near cities, and they're having a really hard time because the U.S. has never really done greenhouses. Unfortunately, running a greenhouse is a really complicated Geordie the Forge type of job, and we don't have a lot of people in our nation who know how to do that. Every time I talk to folks in the ag industry who are working on getting greenhouses up and running, who, by the way, these guys are fantastic and they're trying to do stuff that's really ambitiously positive. I really admire their work. The conversation always winds up to this. Greenhouses are a tough sell here because we have too much land and too much water. The legacy of colonialism is very much alive in American agriculture and it's not doing great things for us. Six. One of our favorite things about family farming, and a big cultural touchstone about it, is that skills are passed down from generation to generation. And they are, and it sounds touching and beautiful until you realize that that means people can be kind of trapped in their parents' skill set. Y'all have seen it in action, and it's real, and it's not great. Something really interesting I've found is that fruit and vegetable farming in the U.S. is heavily dominated by specific immigrant communities, even after they've been here for 100 years or more. The Italian and Dutch communities are big ones. They've been in the U.S. for four or more generations and are still very into being Dutch or Italian. Anglo fruit and veggie farms are definitely out there, but quite a bit more spotty and often kind of newer entrants into the business and still figuring it out. Compared to grain and livestock, growing fruits and vegetables takes a lot of labor and a lot of skill, but not a lot of land. It's been a big traditional source of upward mobility for immigrants and other marginalized groups in the U.S. for that region. These folks didn't get the big 160-plus acre homestead land grants. And they didn't necessarily have the resources to buy into land after the homestead period was over. So grain and livestock farming were really not options for them. What they could get were small patches of land that were often seen as poor quality or too small to be bothered with, often closer to urban markets, They cultivated them very closely, very intensely, and generated cash fairly quickly through crop, uh, through fruit and vegetable sales. In a lot of ways, the recent surge of interest in urban agriculture and spin farming and all of that is the bougie community waking up to what immigrants and black truck farmers have been doing for centuries. Let's do some examples. Almost half of the mushrooms in the U.S. come from one township in Pennsylvania close to Philadelphia called Kennett Square. About 100 years ago, some Italian immigrants said, hey, let's grow mushrooms. And to this day, their families all go to school together and their buds and they have this community of knowledge that generates, again, almost half of the mushrooms in the United States from this one little town. There's a big Sikh berry growing community up on the Washington-British-Columbia border area. There's a big Armenian farming community around Fresno, California, and most of the greenhouses that the U.S. does have are pretty closely held Italian or Dutch family businesses. California would have a lot of produce farms run by Japanese Americans if they hadn't incarcerated them all during World War II, and, oops, their farms got foreclosed, wouldn't you know it. An entire farming community was destroyed in just a year or two by incarcerations for crimes that no one had done. And it didn't just hurt these Japanese American farmers, although it did hurt them deeply. Many families have never been able to recover their land. But crop production from California dropped significantly when these farms were taken over by their Westerner neighbors, which really speaks to that skill gap that we've been talking about. Also legendary, the attrition of black farmers' land into white ownership during Jim Crow. So many Americans arrived here as farm laborers, and they had to crawl through broken glass to get land of their own, and they became successful because of their hard work and skill. And so many times, farmers like my family and my ancestors, we didn't respond with admiration or curiosity or saying, hey, these guys know what's going on. Let's go learn some things. They responded with jealousy and with spite and with stealing. If we're bringing our hands today and wondering why farming is so bad, but we never talk about that. We never talk about who gets to farm and why. How those decisions got made and how much stealing there was and how much jealousy and how much lack of skills motivated that. If we don't ever talk about that, but we think we're going to get towards sustainability, we are fooling ourselves and we are never going to find our way out. So let's get on that. There's no gene out there for being good at growing strawberries. It's one of those things that is completely learnable. But in agricultural communities that really value receiving knowledge that's passed down to you and don't necessarily see knowledge as something that you go out and get, it means you're kind of bound to what your fam already knows. If you come from a tradition that's already hardcore about growing fruits and vegetables, like an Italian or Japanese or Dutch or Gullah community, that's cool. You're off to a great start. You're probably going to be okay. But if you come from a northwestern European background, where the only vegetables are mushy peas and mushy cabbage, you might be in trouble. And it's not something that's in any way inborn or genetic or any kind of hippy-dippy cultural memory nonsense. It's just tied to this idea that knowledge is something that's passed down to you, and you receive it, versus knowledge is something that you go out and you get. So another flashback to back in the day when I had these vague ideas about, I want to farm for a living. So that's what I'm going to do with my life. For a lot of that time, we were parked in Gainesville, Florida for my husband's graduate school. Not really a capital rich time in your life to start a farm business. So I said, you know, we're in this town for a few years. There's nothing to do in this town, but go to more school. I've already worked in agriculture a lot. Let's lay down some more science knowledge on top of that. So I went in for a DPM degree, which, again, is basically becoming a veterinarian for crops. That's got to come in handy with farming, right? So while we're, you know, acquiring all this crop knowledge, it turns out to be very much in the vein of, here's stuff that you can do for your farm clients. Because it turns out crop consulting is a thing. Again, it's basically just being a veterinarian for crops or a farm, And so it would always be, like, here's something for your clients. And we'd go out and do training work with farms. And I began to realize a lot of farmers really don't know how to do this stuff. I had thought that farmers were supposed to be able to figure out when they needed to spray for bugs or something. Like, that should be normal. And some of them do. But a lot of them don't. And the pros who don't know how hire someone else to figure out for them. That's your crop consultant. Um, But a lot of them don't even do that. They just do stuff when they feel I feel like I have a lot of bugs, so I'm going to spray. There's no real plan behind that, other than I just kind of feel like there's a lot. That blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. But even more, as I started working out in the real world, again, at a scientific and consulting level, rather than just a dirty jobs grunt level, I started to realize, oh yeah, a lot of this farming stuff is really improvised. A little bit more personal background, my mom is a nurse and my dad is a nuclear engineer who got his start in the Navy working submarine engines. So in this household, if we're going to do something, we do it right. You do not improvise with nursing and nuclear engines. So even though I've been working in agriculture for a long time doing the grunt jobs and you hear a lot of talk about how farming's hard and you can't control the weather, etc., I still had no idea of how much of farming is just on-the-fly guesswork, and it's not even always the best-informed guesswork. The other thing is, it's not just the conventional, guys. The sustainable farms are like that, too. Even though farming's one of those things that you really want to get right, and when you don't, there can be big consequences. So the first year or two I was working in ag with this kind of additional insight into the process above the dirty jobs level and I was going a little bit mental. I could not believe the stuff that I was seeing. And again, of course, obviously the 80-20 rule, 80% of the crazy stuff you see going on is happening on 20% of the farms. But just overall, the level of, again, guesswork versus planned action that's happening in agriculture, I was pretty surprised to see where that balance was actually laying. And the thing is, people will tell you, how bad agriculture is, and it's agribusiness's fault, and small family farms are the answer. I'll tell you what I see. Uh, You know how crop pests and diseases don't just come out of nowhere. They usually happen because the crop already has some kind of health issue, and the pest is just taking advantage of that. I think family farms and agribusiness are a lot like that. All those issues that we just talked about, how family farms have always struggled, Uh, there was never a time when they were successful in general, There have always been a lot of things that they couldn't do simply because of their nature, who was running them, how they came to be. Agribusiness arose to fill those gaps. Agribusiness did the things that family farms couldn't do or didn't want to do. Agribusiness isn't some kind of horrible alien invader that came out to conquer an otherwise healthy farm sector. Agribusiness is the patch that we had to put on family farms because there were so many things they couldn't or wouldn't do. And I know we love to romanticize it, but it's not like family farming was ever that kind to families either. If your house is on your farm, then if something goes wrong with the farm, then you lose the house. Nobody should have to take that kind of risk just to run a business. A lot of the things that the sustainable farm movement blames on, like bad guys in a back room twirling their mustache, like overuse of pesticides and fertilizers. In real life, these things happen because farms are just strapped for time and money and resources because of the nature of what they are, a system based on inheritance, and not necessarily connected to having good access to capital, to skills. When us non-farming civilians are strapped for time and resources, and maybe some know-how on how to deal with certain aspects of our lives, we wind up with a sink full of dirty dishes, and the laundry's in a pile on the floor, and the lawn gets kind of long. When a farm is overwhelmed, you get math errors, and you wind up with too much pesticide. Or you know there won't be time to put down a second, small dose of fertilizer later, so you just put out some extra the first time to hedge your bets. And if it rains and half of it washes away, well, I mean, you can't control the weather now, can you? When you work with farms, you also see a lot of families with really dysfunctional dynamics that start to spill out just when you're there as a visitor, so who knows what's going on when you're not even there. And then, of course, those kids don't stick around after they grow up, do they? They get as far away as they can. And then the parents grumble about how kids these days are lazy and don't want to work. And then you have farms where the kids do appear to be doing all the work on the farm. They're driving the tractors, supervising harvest, running the packing house. And the old people on those farms still complain about how kids these days don't do anything and are lazy. And you just kind of want to shake them awake and say, my God, your kids are great. Would you stop? Griping for a second to just look at what you have. But that's not very professional. So you just kind of run around farm country doing your job and seeing this stuff happen, and what do you do with all that information? I mean, people talk about how tragic it is that family farms keep failing, and why does this keep happening? And to me, there's just no mystery at all. The farms that go under, you know, sometimes it's tragic, and sometimes it's just time. Nothing lasts forever, and that's okay. My family lost the farm some 80 years ago, and it wasn't the end of the world. So what do I want to leave us on with this episode? I think the sustainable farming movement is right on the nose, that there are some things seriously wrong with how U.S. farming works, and I think it's also drastically misdiagnosed the cause. We're really focused on how nasty agribusiness is. We're not thinking about what situation did we have that created agribusiness in the first place? Why do we have a giant institution dedicated to replacing skill with purchased inputs and tools? Does that tell you that maybe we had a giant skill vacuum to start with? Maybe we should be worried about that. And the thing is, and the thing is, if the sustainable ag movement thinks agribusiness is the problem, then the solution is replacing it with family farms. But if the problem is a skill gap and the fact that family farms throughout history have just always been and always will be a very brittle, prone to failing institution, so maybe it's family farming itself that's a really big part of how agribusiness got to be what it is now. That would change how we want to fix that problem, wouldn't it? So it's really important that we're clear with ourselves on what is the root cause of our problems here. I really see family farms versus agribusiness as the four legs good, two legs bad of the food movement. It might be convenient, and it might feel right in your heart, but it also misses the entire point. There are a lot of ways to build agriculture so that it can bring new people in who weren't necessarily born on a farm, and they can train and become good at it, and get access to the resources, the capital, and land that they need to successfully grow food. These are things like worker-owned businesses, uh, native land trusts, even just family-run farms that are passed on to trained apprentices instead of born heirs, like they do in the dairy industry in New Zealand. I do not believe that family farms are the one true way to be sustainable. I don't think anything based on the accidents of birth is sustainable. It's a bad way to run a country, and it's a really bad way to run an entire sector that's so critical to our survival. But the sustainable ag movement has been so focused on saving family farms that it hasn't really thought critically about why they fail and how. If we want to fix agriculture, we have to come to grips with some of that background, and we need to find the right things to value. Well, that's today. Thanks for listening, and Farm to Tabor will be back next week. Special thanks to revolutionary co-working in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space and to Lauren Harris for audio production.